Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 46 through 48, which I'll read right now. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But when Jesus perceived the thought of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. You know, the disciples were a bit thick-headed, just like we are. Uh, you know, here, Jesus, in the paragraph right before the passage I just read, announces his coming sacrificial death. And these guys turn around and assert their selfishness, just the dead opposite of what Jesus was doing. And I have to say, they didn't learn the first time, because when we get Towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, we find in chapter 22, a dispute among, arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. All over again, these guys couldn't stop jockeying for position, wanting to have the be the top dog in the kingdom of God. And I need to emphasize that this portion of the Gospel of Luke, talking about religious pride versus what I would call kingdom humility, as evidenced in this child that Jesus brought forth, this is something that infects Christian circles. It infects religious circles. This isn't a teaching about those bad guys out there. No, this debate amongst the disciples is an in-house problem, and it's a fatal problem because pride erodes one's relationship with God. I'd like to start today with looking at some various types of religious pride, and and don't be afraid. uh, We're going to look at a few different groups, but we're going to bring it home as well. But I like to start with first century Judaism. You know, the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces. They just like to be recognized as the holy men in Luke chapter 20. Jesus says, beware of the scribes, other holy people. These were the ones who were, what, had their PhDs in theology, so to speak, in first century Judaism. You like to go about in long robes, love salutations in the marketplace, in the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feast. You devour widows' houses, and for pretense, make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. 
Now, there were sinners in first century Israel when Jesus was walking around and, and preaching, but he says the greater condemnation is going to fall on the ones with religious pride. And, you know, these are some stern condemnations by Jesus. Here's another group. How about evangelical Protestants suffering from religious pride? And I take this from an evangelical author. I'll I'll guard his identity so nobody attacks him. But this is straight from an evangelical author, and I quote, Of all the sins that are most acceptable in the church today, religious pride tops the list. We reward proud leaders. The proud may have leadership in our churches, but they are not Jesus's intimate friends. Religious pride is the worst form of arrogance. And then the same author made a rather astute observation. Listen to this, quote, the sternest rebukes Jesus ever delivered were not given to the sexually impure, but to the spiritually proud, unquote. Ouch. So we see religious pride in first century Judaism. And here an evangelical author, a respected man, saying religious pride is pervasive in evangelical Protestant circles. And I'm so glad to be a Catholic because we don't really have to worry about religious pride in, well, oh, we do? Really? Yes, we we do. And let me mention some ways we have to be aware of religious pride, even in our day. This isn't just a first century problem amongst the disciples or amongst the scribes and Pharisees or among other religious uh, denominations. There are extreme dangers for religious pride whenever you have church hierarchy. Now, are you saying, Steve, hierarchy is bad? No, not at all. Hierarchy is God's plan for governing his church. If you have any question about this, I can remember as a Presbyterian reading the Apostolic Fathers, particularly St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a martyr, and he was writing in about 108 AD, probably ordained by St. John, so there's no long gap, there's no centuries of development or anything else, and it's clear as a bell that there wasn't Presbyterian form of church government, which you are in a Presbyterian church, you you are ruled by elders. That's the Greek word presbuteros means. It's you get Presbyterian from that. No, it wasn't governed by elders, and Presbyterians make a distinction between elders and bishops. They don't Presbyterians don't want anything to do with bishops governing the church, and yet in 108 AD, you had bishops, you had hierarchy. So again, I am not against hierarchy. I do believe it's God's plan for governing his church. So with that, I will say right along with that, that the temptations for those in religious hierarchy is great. 
um, let's talk about St. Ambrose, a man who was so instrumental in bringing St. Augustine into the faith. When they wanted to make him a leader in the church, you know what he did? He, he, he didn't rip open his shirt and go, wow, I'm great, you know, ordain me. No, he ran away and hid. They had to go searching for him, finding him, and bring him out and ordain him and install him as a leader in the church. And yet people have told me today, for instance, the North American College in Rome, a great place to learn, and many future bishops will be coming out of the North American College in Rome. And yet I've been told by people who have been there that when a visiting cardinal comes for dinner, there's all this jockeying for seats near the visiting cardinal because they might be able to put in a good word for them and to move up the hierarchy, so to speak. That's called vain glory. That's that's a self-seeking glory, and that's really dangerous. Look at Jesus himself. Obviously, when we're talking about hierarchy, he is the head of the church. And yet, where did Satan come after him? Ah, just bow down and worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. He was the king of kings and lord of lords, but he offered him a short circuit, Satan's way to assume that hierarchical role that Jesus had. No, vainglory feeds on religious pride, and you need to be very cautious about that. And anyone who is in the hierarchy needs our prayers to persevere in humility, because if the very disciples could be near the most humble man that ever walked this planet, Jesus Christ, and if Jesus, the best teacher that was ever on this planet, was teaching them about his self-sacrifice in the paragraph before this occurred, well, to think that we would somehow be immune from these temptations would be a self-deception. Okay, extreme dangers in religious hierarchy, and that includes the Catholic Church. Now, I'm going to talk about a really great danger of religious pride that's actually a modern form of it. You see, Religious pride is kind of like a leak in a boat. It can come anywhere. You just need a little small crack. The water starts coming in. It seeps to other places, weakens the boat, and then it sinks. There is a particular form of modern religious pride that I dare say a lot of people who are listening to my voice right now are not aware of. And I'm talking about the religious pride that is prone for Catholic media hosts, I'm including myself, and those on the Catholic speaker circuit. You know, I have heard some promo spots for a, quote, celebrity priest, unquote, coming to a conference And with all the drama and superlatives, it sounded like it was the second coming of Christ or something. And it's not a mystery to me that that particular priest who had that grandiose promo for his conference, he he wasn't doing the promo, but others were doing it. And this is why I'm issuing this, this caution. He crashed and burned. But to introduce people like myself, like someone on EWTN or a speaker at a Catholic conference, uh, so-and-so's 
a Catholic personality, or we're going to have a collection of Catholic media stars, or Catholic celebrity priests and speakers, healers, or exorcists. This is actually a terrible thing to do because those in Catholic media and those on the Catholic speaker circuit, just like those in the Catholic hierarchy, are always in danger of religious pride. And Catholics living particularly in the United States, we are a media-prone society. And what do we do? We put any Tom, Dick, Harry, or Betty on TV, and they sing a song, and they become an American Idol. We blow it up. Well, by blowing up the egos of Catholic celebrities, it endangers their ministries and their very souls. Can you imagine standing for Jesus, and uh, you introduce yourself, hello, Jesus, I'm a Catholic media personality. Uh, I'm a Catholic media star. And it's like, are you kidding me? Uh, haven't you learned anything? Haven't you ever read the gospel? You know, I don't think you'll mind me mentioning this, but uh, I was privileged to speak at a conference in Tampa, Florida with Father Larry Richards, who many of you know. And the most unforgettable part of that weekend I had with Father Richards, it wasn't in the great talks he gave. He gave two talks. We had dinner together and all that. Now, it was in about the last three minutes that he was with the men in Tampa, Florida, and he said, I ask you men to pray for me because it's a danger to be on this speaker circuit. And most of the other priests that have been doing this have fallen for one reason or another. And I realize that I need God's protection and God's grace. And he asked for the men to pray for him. Now, I've been at Catholic conferences for years. I never heard anyone voice anything in such a humble and such a wise and such a powerful fashion. And it's something we should be hearing at every conference, not how can we blow this speaker's ego up or this priest's ego up versus how can we assist him in prayers for grace and humility in what God has called him to do, okay? That's the second area of dangers to Catholics, uh, the hierarchy, the media personalities, and I don't know what to say. I'm very uncomfortable with any of these titles. I, I accept the title of host, but not celebrity or personality or all that other stuff. Ugh, get rid of it. All right. Now, I'd like to talk about the most common form of Catholic religious pride, and this is exceedingly widespread there is a great probability that it is in your own home. You think, you gotta be kidding me. Yes, it is very widespread, and here it is. It's the disease of prideful self-salvation. We are saved by Jesus Christ, not by ourselves. And to think that you can save yourself is the height of pride. It's the height of religious pride. 
You might say, well, nobody believes that. Really? I went 20 years before I became a Catholic, and I never met a Catholic who could tell me that the way they get to heaven is trusting in Jesus for their salvation. Because if I would ask a Catholic, a typical Catholic, how do you hope to get to heaven? It invariably began with the word I, the pronoun I. I do this, I don't do that. I do this, I don't do that. And that is what is called self-salvation. And that is religious pride. We need the humility, not the prideful aspect of it. And there is a book of the Bible that's designed to root out religious pride. Have you read it? Do you know what it is? I'm talking about St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. You know, St. Paul was the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter that everybody reads at weddings and stuff. I mean, nice guy, always talking about loving, getting along. But boy, he blows the lid off in Galatians because this is a church. Remember, these were Catholics. There were no Protestants back then. The Orthodox hadn't split off. So these Galatians were Catholics who had begun trusting in Jesus for their salvation and switched to I, to the self-salvation. And that's religious pride. And the result of that, I'm just going to give you a summation of the various phrases St. Paul uses to describe trusting in yourself for salvation. And I've asked you several times to ask your children, how do they hope to get to heaven? And does Jesus come out? Or if it's the word I, it's I trust in Jesus. The other stuff, it's trusting in whatever you have to offer God for eternal life. And if you do that, St. Paul says, you're deserting Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. You're perverting the gospel of Christ. You're not justified before God. You're nullifying the grace of God. You want to know, in fact, I'm writing a book on this, and this actually comes from the book I'm writing. If you run out of grace and a young person needs grace in today's world with the culture we're living in, if you run out of grace, you quit the race and you drop out of practicing the faith. And if you're trusting in yourself, you're nullifying the grace of God. That's like saying, I'm going to turn off the engine or try to drive my car without gas. St. Paul says, trusting in yourself, you are under a curse. That's Galatians 3.11. You're under a yoke of spiritual slavery. You are severed from Christ. You're like going off the cliff, and you've fallen from grace. So in a nutshell, to have a primary trust in yourself for getting right with God is a complete disaster. It's a spiritual disaster. Now, somebody's going to say, but I heard that Catholics are supposed to do good things. They are. Listen to St. Paul and how he identifies himself. And if you want just a single verse to kind of pull this together, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10 is a great place to start. Here's how he starts. By the grace of God, I am what I am can tell you autobiographically, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. 
St. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not because of my genius theological brain. He had a genius theological brain. It's not because of all the good things I tried to do before I met Christ, because even though I tried really hard, some of the things I tried hard at were wrong. No, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So in other words, it was God's grace that brought St. Paul into a relation with Jesus, and he worked harder than any of the others. And then he says this, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is in me and with me. This is the secret of living successfully the Catholic life in the 21st century. And apart from this, people are going to fall away by the millions because self-salvation, you run out of steam. Paul can work harder than any of them, but he realizes it's by the grace of God that was in him, that was empowering him. He wasn't the little train that could. He was the apostle of the grace of God. And you know what unleashes the power of God in your life? It's humility. Listen to St. Paul as he gives his personal testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Though I formerly blasphemed, persecuted, and insulted him, I was a sinner, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know, it wouldn't hurt every now and then to hear somebody on the speaker circuit or somebody giving a homily saying, you know, um, I was a sinner, but I received grace. And if it wasn't for grace, I would be a sinner. And guess what? There's a wide reception because this is called good news. St. Paul goes on to say, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the foremost of sinners. This is the apostle. I am the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You might be listening to me and you're, let's say, 42 and a half years old, and you've been trying all your life really hard to keep all the commandments and the moral guidance of the church and the rules within the church but you've been trying on your own and it's getting to be a rather heavy burden. Or you might be 42 and a half years old and have a teenager at home who is already giving up because it's just too much with the social media, the pressures, the culture, the friends, the drugs, the alcohol, the immorality, the everything else. How, how, how are you supposed to do this, the little train that could? No, the hill is too steep for you but it's not too steep for Jesus in you. This is the secret to the Catholic life in the 21st century. And Jesus, amongst these fighting religious 
egomaniacs called the, the apostles, okay? And the apostles did it. And, you know, St. Paul knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was a sinner, and he knew that he was an apostle because of the grace of God. And Jesus takes this little child and puts him beside himself. And you see, a child is dependent. A child is a dependent. You know, like on your tax return, it's really nice when you have a whole bunch of kids and you can have list all your dependents because they can't survive in the world without receiving something from their parents and from their teachers and from their church. They're receivers. They're not self-supporting. Hopefully they will by the time they leave the nest, but they're, a child is a dependent and to receive God's love to receive God's grace, to receive eternal life, to successfully live the Christian life, to teach our children is to be dependent. A, a child doesn't have degrees or awards or honors or trophies or status or titles and position and all the rest. A child just knows that he or she is loved by the grace particularly that parents give. And how does Jesus tell us to approach God? our Father. And in Luke 11, we're going to see this magnificent chapter. He teaches us to come to God as a father, as a child in need, and and knowing and depending on God to provide what they don't have. This is, this is the life of humility, kingdom humility. And just a little P.S., which I find very interesting— and this is according to a tradition in the Eastern Church, and I know I can't prove it, but I'll, I do stick with this. This little child, according to the Eastern Church, that Jesus pulled out in the middle of his disciples and said, this is, this is the example of kingdom humility. Get rid of the religious pride in all its forms. This child, according to the Eastern Church, grew up to be known as the early church father and martyr, St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who I just mentioned to you, who reading him, it only takes you an hour or less, literally blasted me out of the Presbyterian Church because I could see clearly and unmistakably um, the form of church government in the early church, thanks to St. Ignatius. Ditto for the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And here's a man who left his imprint on the early church and I trust by reading his story, particularly a story of martyrdom, he learned the lesson that humility is the door for grace and blessings in the kingdom of God. Remember that when you pray the Our Father. And I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 242 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.